Dear son, take care of health and take care of the one thing needful. For preservation of the soul is better than a million of worlds. It may be that never will we meet on earth, but I hope we will meet in heaven above the starry frame. This is a letter written to William Irwin in Australia by his father Joseph in Ireland. It's one of a series of family letters that continued until the 1890s. I'm Helen Townsend and William Irwin was my great-grandfather. William had arrived in Sydney on February the 9th, 1850. On the ship's passenger list, he was number 36 of the single males. William Irwin, age 18 years, calling, farm labourer. Native place, Kildress and County Tyrone. Parents' names, Joseph and Anne. Religious denomination, C of E. Read or write, both. Relations in the colony, none. State of bodily health and probable usefulness, good. He was part of the great wave of immigration which followed the Irish potato famine of the 1840s. A million people had starved to death and many others emigrated to avoid starvation. By the turn of the century, County Tyrone, where the Irwins lived, had just over half the population it had had before the famine. William's photograph hangs amongst the family portraits in my house. We have newspaper articles about William and his obituaries. We know about his wives, his children, his involvement in the Eureka Stockade. But this program is about the family he left behind in Ireland. His mother, his father, his brothers and his sister. They are shadowy figures. We have no photographs, no remaining possessions. They have come alive for us through the letters they wrote to William. Dear William, your dear mother asked the request of me to put you in mind of your promise to her that you would come home in six years if life and health permit. But dear son, you know best how to manage that affair. It would be a great rejoicement to us and the whole of the neighbours to see your face once more. William didn't keep that promise to his mother. He never returned to Ireland. Two of his sisters and one brother had gone to America. Emigration was necessary for the survival of the family, but the emotional cost was high, especially for those left behind. Their story reflects the wider experience of Irish families affected by emigration, the ones who didn't find new lands, new ideas or new experiences in the great Irish diaspora. They stayed on, in their cottages and farms and shrinking neighbourhoods. For them, struggles and poverty remained. William was almost certainly an assisted immigrant, which explains why he came to Australia rather than joining his brother in America. He had little money, but he did have some education and carried a number of references. 24th of September, 1849. Drumshambo, County Tyrone. My dear sir, 
I take the liberty to write to you respecting the bearer, William Irwin, of this parish. He is a member of our church. He bears an excellent character and has determined to emigrate to Sydney. He is a well-educated, intelligent young man. His parents, most respectable people, farmers by occupation. I feel convinced he will fill with fidelity and zeal any situation he may be appointed to. He is most anxious to further himself, and there is, alas, nothing now to be had in our country. William's family in Ireland wrote to him until his death in 1893. By extraordinary luck, many of these letters have survived. Some were lost and periods of years are missing. But there are 54 letters still in existence. Last year, my sister Alison McIntyre spent months working from the original letters to produce a full, annotated transcription. The letters could finally be read and for the first time we began to understand the story of our Irish family. Deciphering the letters was an extraordinary process. The ink had faded, the paper was yellowed and fragile, and sometimes parts of the letter were missing. And there were other scraps with just marginal notes. Punctuation was almost non-existent, and spelling was extremely variable and inventive. For instance, K-N-O-W was used to mean no, in both senses of the word. And if you added an I-N-G at the end, it might even mean nothing, or it might mean knowing. T-H-E could mean they, or it could mean there, in both senses of, of the word. There were lots of things like that, as well as some archaic words, fascinating, of course, um, and words that I simply couldn't decipher. We had a number of goes at it, the actual working out what letters, you know, what the words were. You know, you'd do the first draft and you'd pick some bits and then you'd do a bit more of an other letters and then you'd start cross-referencing and, and uh, filling in some of the holes. But more challenging and, in a way, more interesting was piecing together a picture of the family's life in Ireland, finding out how the people were related, when the various children of the Irwin family migrate, emigrated, who was left behind, and the emigration of neighbours in that closely-knit community, many of them connected with, with William in Australia, either directly or through his father's letters. William's parents, Joseph and Anne, lived on a leasehold farm in Nokaliri, near Cookstown in, in County Tyrone, with their remaining children, that's Eliza, John and Robert. An older son, Joseph, and his wife Eleanor, and their son lived nearby in Tatty Keel, which was a, also on a leasehold farm, very, very close, adjoining it was, adjoining to, to Nokaliri. The Irwins weren't as desperately poor as many Irish families, but emigration was absolutely necessary. The fa- the, those two farms could not sustain eight children eight families, so it was absolutely necessary for their survival that some of them emigrate. The main correspondents were William's father, Old Joseph, his brother Joseph, and his sister Eliza. We think his mother was probably illiterate, 
because there are no letters from her. Although the, and the letters are full of references to her um, up until the time of her death, including lots of messages, direct messages to William from her in, in old Joseph's letters. The Irwins were planter stock, English or Scottish Protestants brought to Ireland generations earlier to work the lands given to English landlords. The planter stock were generally better treated than the native Irish tenants, but they also felt bitter at the callous behaviour of the English during the famine. The early letters are full of hope and possibilities. The family wanted to join William, but they had to pay off the farm debts before they could afford the passage. The money to pay the debts came mainly from emigrant children sending money home. Dear son, intend to pay McRae on or before November 1853, if possible, and then I can sell Tatty Keel when I think proper. I cannot sell till I pay McRae his money. Your brother Joseph cannot sell till the judgment is cleared off. As soon as your letter come to hand, I gave him leave to sell, and no one could purchase till the judgment would be cleared off, or he would be in the ship with David Scott and Robert along with him. Your mother never had better health than she has this winter, and all the family lives in harmony and the greatest of pleasure. Your mother thinks she will live to see you in this world, and that would be a great pleasure to her. I wish the same. Dear son, your kindness to us will never be forgotten. In his first year in New South Wales, William had barely eked out a living as a schoolteacher. Inevitably, he succumbed to gold fever and ended up in Ballarat. The excitement was almost palpable when a letter containing gold arrived in Nocaliri. Dear son, I received your kind and welcome letter on 15th of January 1853, which found us all in good health at that date. Thank God for his kind mercies to us and you. The two little pieces of gold came safe, and at the opening of the letter, one of them dropped on the ground, and when the letter was read, two pieces was read out of the letter. The floor was rough, and the search was made, and found the other piece. But, my dear son, you have done uncommonly clever. Why should you give me your saving? Far be it for me to think you should do so. William sent more than £200 to his family in five years. This extraordinary amount of money was received gratefully. But William's brother Joseph, who wanted to leave Ireland but never did, clearly felt envious of the siblings who had left. He found it hard to accept their help without resentment. Dear brother, I and Eleanor and little William is well. Little William is as fine a child of his age as any in this county. Thanks be to God for all his kind mercies to us and you in a strange country, dear brother. Dear brother, in respect of me going to that country, I should be very glad to go if I was able, but the government immigration is stopped this 12 months, so it takes from 16 to 22 pounds per passenger to pay the way. It is thought the free immigration will open again in summertime. Brother James encouraged me several times to go to America. He said he would give his farm of land. 
I knew nothing of father writing to him to see if he would give one of his farms. The answer he sent back was he would give it to me for 300 pounds British. The answer I write to him is I never asked anything of him. For when I got to beg, it is not to him. The emigration of William and his siblings had been an economic necessity. But Eliza's letters really bring home the loneliness of those left behind. Her letters are full of affectionate longing for her siblings and of sisterly anxiety for William. My dear brother, I hope the Lord will prosper you in a strange land. I am very lonesome since Anne, Jane and Mary went away. Mary had a young daughter in August last. Its name is Anne. Anne Jane has right for Robert to go to her, but we would rather he would go to you. If I was going, it would be to you. It grieves Mother and us all, you alone in a strange country. Here is to you, my brother dear, that's far away and in a distant clime. Though absent from my sight, yet present in my mind. You never told us what way the gold is dug, whether it is sore work or not. Mother is still counting the time that you said you would return, if God spares you. So, I remain your affectionate sister to death, Eliza Irwin. A young man left his native shore A trade was bad at home To seek his fortune in this land He crossed the briny foam And when he went to Ballarat It put him in a glow To hear the sound of the windlasses And the cry, look out below Old Joseph worried about gold mining. He wanted a more sensible and predictable life for his son. He cast round and took steps to get William a government job. Dear William, I see in the newspaper young men called for that can write a good hand and from what Cole tells us, the searching for gold is dangerous. Be sure to send a letter to Major Brady. Write it in the most splendid manner and it will not be long till I get a hearing of it. If you could be appointed to the custom house or the constabulary or for the excise, your bread would be baked. I received your bill of £10 of which I never will forget and may God bless you for time and eternity. William was doing too well on the goldfields to think about a government job. He was maybe a little exasperated by his father's meddling and gently let the advice pass. We have no idea what old Joseph looked like, but we can imagine him writing one of his many, many letters to his son. It seems that William was constantly in the old man's head and heart. His letters are full of warmth, warnings, advice and love. Old Joseph was a tireless correspondent, taking full advantage of the new steamers which carried the mail. 
Dear son, the date of your letter was the 20th of September, 52. I sent one in April or May, and I sent one with Bernard Murphy and one with the steamer on the 9th of December, 52. And I am determined to send you one with every steamer, and the steamer that carried this one went on the 7th of February, 1853. And when you hear of a steamer landing in Port Jackson and Port Phillip, you may be sure of a letter from me. For I'm determined to send you a letter in every steamer that leaves Liverpool for Sydney or Melbourne. Dear son, I'm going to let you know some farming affairs. I have 17 pecks of flax this season and about 5 acres of corn and one of turnips. I have five cows and three heifers and two pigs and the two little ponies and that's my stock. And the last money you gave me, uh, that was the second bill, I gave it Mr. McRae. I engaged to give him £10 every November till he would be paid. And I am determined to give him £20 November 1853. I'm going to let you know that I have George Miller's farm. Mr. Miller of Minamore asked me to take it and I did so and your friend Joseph Baxter was much huffed at me for taking it. He thought he would get it before me. If Joseph was huffed, Catherine Baxter was double huffed, but I care not. Under repressive English law, with an archaic system of land tenancy, Ireland remained a backwater. The excess rural population had literally nowhere to go, except to leave the country. You can almost feel Ireland being drained of its people. Dear son, there are a great many people here bound this month for Australia. There's a daughter of that family of Johnsons, below Joseph Baxter's towards the Kildress River, who some years ago also emigrated to Sydney and has lately returned to see her mother. And she is now going back, taking her brother Thomas with her. There are also them children belonging to Joseph Brown, whose passages were paid on the other side by their sisters, that have been married to some of the Buckins, Henry Newbury's sons, and a great many more. You're with Hindsight on Radio National and the story of William Irwin and the family he left behind in Ireland. The letters also provide a picture of the social fabric of Ireland through the recounting of family dramas. Robert Irwin, an older brother, was the black sheep of this family. Dear son, I am sorry to inform you Robert made a muck of his own choosing. He went and married Jane Cand in the poorhouse and let no one know it but Joseph and Ellen. So, my dear son, you may know the state that your dear mother and I was in when we heard of it. I was much troubled, but mother was ten times more troubled than me. Mother would be fully satisfied to lay his body in Kildress graveyard as to do what he has done. So at the present date, he is living on sufferance. When the anger went off me, I told Robert he was welcome to stay with me and to work as he had formerly done. 
He was welcome, but as for her, she would never be acknowledged by Mother or me or Eliza. Robert's transgression sunk heavily on Mother's spirit, but seven times more on my spirits. To say he would marry a poor, sickly, dying girl? Oh, dear son. Oh, dear son, will I ever forgive unfortunate Robert? I have wrote this letter with salt tears. Poor, unfortunate Robert. After this disastrous marriage, Robert's wife gave birth to a son, James. There was talk of Robert emigrating and Jane following. Jane died, but Robert did emigrate. Their son, James, lived with the family at Nokaliri and became a great favourite in the Irwin household. William had ceased to be a digger, although he remained deeply interested in gold mining. He invested his money with a partner in building a hotel, the Star, near the Eureka Lee. It was described as a leading house with a theatre attached. The Star Hotel is a favourite resort for those addicted to an hour's lounge, not without cigars or cognac. The musical talent now engaged in is of the usual order, and Mr Golding's low comedy effusions are such that hit the popular taste with much success. The letters from the family in Ireland from 1854 till 1863 have disappeared. What we do know, in looking at the trajectory of William's life, was that there was an ever-increasing gap between him and his family back in Ireland, between his possibilities and theirs. The family had probably never travelled beyond County Tyrone. The people they knew they'd known all their lives. The community was being transformed, but it was a transformation of loss. William had come to a new world where new ideas and people mixed. This resulted in a profoundly altered worldview. Ballarat is one of the wonders of this century. 56 churches, three town halls, 477 hotels. 84 miles of made streets, School of Mines, Municipal Revenue, Art Gallery, 50, The Mechanics pounds, Institute, Ballarat College, Academy of Music, The Benevolent Society, The Horticultural Society, Steamflower Mills. In the 1850s, Ballarat, Ballarat was awash with opportunities, ideas, and interpretations of the world that led to the Eureka Stockade, the armed resistance of miners against the government of Victoria. William wasn't a direct participant in the Eureka Stockade, but his Star Hotel was a meeting place for the moderates and the radicals who led the campaign which resulted in Eureka. When the Star Hotel burnt down in 1861, William moved away from the diggings. By this time, he'd married Bridget Byrne and they had a baby boy. He built the provincial hotel to entice the new breed of travellers to Ballarat. William Irwin's new provincial, commercial and family hotel directly opposite the railway station, Lydiard Street, Ballarat. Superior accommodation for travellers, families or persons visiting Ballarat or travelling by coach or rail. Travellers can always depend upon being called in time for the early coaches or trains. 
Dear son, I let you know of the deplorable harvest we have had and the state of the country. With all crops destroyed by incessant rains, snow and frost, and the most part out in stooks, and indeed some yet to be shorn, God look to the poor of this country, for everything as regards provisions will be at an enormous price, if they can be got at all. No food for man or beast, it is most lamentable. Robert was the last of the Irwins to emigrate. Earlier plans for the whole family to be reunited faded as old Joseph and Anne aged. William wrote asking for his sister Eliza to come to Australia. Old Joseph was alarmed by this request. He had depended on the emigrant children's financial help, but now he and Anne needed the physical help of his remaining children. I am sorry to inform you that that part of your letter wishing Sister Eliza to go to you has preyed on your dear mother's mind since, and she desires me say, how could you expect that she would part with Eliza? Oh, not until she is laid in kill dress. But still, she is aware that you meant kindly towards bringing her there, but which must be deferred to some other time, for at present we could not lose her. Poor Eliza. She didn't marry, she couldn't immigrate. But she knew about the attractions of colonial life and wrote, with a hint of jealousy, to William, his wife, and his little boy, William Joseph, about the fine lives of those who came back to visit Nocoliri. My dear brother and sister, nephew, I have to inform you that Letitia Johnson came home to Clare about two weeks ago from Sydney. She married nine years ago to a man of name Banfield, and she has no children, and came on visit to see her mother. They live out at Paramate and keep a dairy. She saved a lot of money. I seen her at church this last three Sabbaths, and three separate changes of silk dresses on her. After emigrating, Robert rarely wrote to his parents. This led to sharp comments by his father in letters to William. Your dear mother, who is sometimes better and sometimes worse, is all out of patience at not hearing from Robert. His sprained ankle would not prevent him from writing. Your dear mother and Eliza has taken the opportunity of Miss Norris going out to send you, Mrs Irwin, and little William Joseph some small things. Two pairs of socks for you, two pairs of stockings, two collars and a Bible for Mrs Irwin from Eliza and a pair of stockings for William Joseph. The socks and stockings are all your dear mother's netting. They're a small present, but she hopes they will be acceptable as if they were of more. There's an intimacy and familiarity running through the letters that almost belies the sense of time passing. There is an occasional recognition that William was now a man, heading for middle age, with a different life from the one he'd had as a boy, and that the family were also ageing. 
At times, there's a sense of melancholy, the slow loosening of family bonds. Oh, the Downs is full of rabbits now, and if you were at home, there would be great sport. But I suppose you never give it a thought of the days when you were young. Dear son, now I am in the 85th year of my age, and it may be the last. I am the oldest man in our country now, and when your letter comes to hand, it makes me 10 or 15 years younger. But as for Robert, I will say nothing. Now, brother, as for our father, oh, God favour him with good health. He bees up every morning at five o'clock and gets then all to work. He looks better this summer than last few years. I am sure if William had seen him at Major Richard's funeral, he would proud to look at his father look so well amongst the rest in rank. A man of 85 years of age. I think there is none of sons will stand it so well as he has done. Dear brother, my son William is now 13 years of age last Christmas. He is very big and strong for his age. He often talks of writing a letter to his uncle William, but brother William has forgot me altogether. Many the day I nursed him and carried him on my back, he has forgot all that now. The poor health of William's wife, Bridget, was mentioned from time to time in the letters. She died in 1865. William was left a widower with two boys, William Joseph, aged four, and John Alfred, just a baby. Around the same time, news came from Ireland that Anne Irwin, William's mother, had died. Oh, dear William... It is with a soulful heart and wiping eyes I pen this. This is the hardest trial I ever got. I have lost a good, kind comrade she was to me during her life. But the more, I have no right to complain. The Lord was good that spared her so long over us, 75 years of age. I know you stood a great deal harder trials losing your young wife, leaving two orphans, never to know a mother's care. But blessed be God... His will be done, if we could take it that way. We have all good health, thanks be to God for it. But it feels lonesome and wants something since the death of your dear mother. A dear mother she was. She was no burden to us. Dear brother, We had a most respectable funeral with both clergy and laity. I went to Mr. Clough of Cookstown and got one of the best coffins that he could make and Paddy Malloy's two-horse hearse. But it was a hard case to part Eliza from mother when she was a-putting in the coffin. She has spoke very little, as yet she is not able to. Dear brother, my mother, my mother, 
No kind mother have I now. It was my whole concern the time of her sickness, her eternal happiness. I knew she wouldn't get over it. When I would read to her the joys of heaven and the goodness of Lord Jesus, it would take away my sorrow. <laughs> Every petition I asked of God, he granted to me. I didn't want to see her suffer in this world. Dear brother, she loved you above the rest. She would say the day she died, she asked, was anyone at the post? But the mail wasn't in, the cock came and crowed. I said, there is letters coming, mother. Soon after these sad events, there is another substantial gap of almost ten years in the letters, until 1876. Old Joseph died in this time, and William married Jane Norris. Jane took on the mothering of William's two sons, and had four more children with him. He became a mason, and a member of Scots Kirk, the Presbyterian Church. He was a leading member of the Licensed Victuallers Association, and an active investor in gold companies. In 1876, Jane died, leaving him a widower again with six children. The first letter we have in the series is written by Eliza to William's oldest son, William Joseph. My dear Sonny, I was most sorry to hear of your dear mother's death and more so about your father and young children. Oh, he stood a deal of trouble. And as you are the oldest child, be a comfort to your father and show young ones a good example and do as your father wants you. Be kind and loving to them in present and when from home, remember them at throne of grace. Above all, to our heavenly father which cares for us. You were long in writing this time. You were twelve months. I was thinking you was getting up in boyhood and would forget your old aunt. William's brother Robert had married soon after arriving in Victoria and had four children. He married a Catholic. Brother Joseph was hideously condemnatory about Robert's Catholic marriage. I am very sorry about poor Robert. I would rather Robert had to come home and left such Hindus as he fell in with as I can call such false teachers or worshippers of the beast, nothing else. When he was so unfortunate, why did he not start for home or some other country? Little wonder that Robert didn't write. William's bonds with home were also growing weaker, and Eliza was always pleading for news. Her letters, with news of crops, of good and bad seasons, of old neighbours who had died, and religious exhortation, must have felt like they belonged to William's very distant past. 
Robert's wife died in 1878, Robert in 1879. He left two dependent children and William took some responsibility for them. William himself married for a third time in 1879 to Julia Vivian. Julia was a widow with no children, nearly 40. She had been a publican's wife. It was an arranged match but a very successful marriage. Julia's only surviving child was my grandfather, Harold Irwin, born in 1882. It's apparent from Eliza's letters at this time that William wrote very rarely. Her begging letters become almost too painful to read. My dear brother and sister and family all, I have written so many times to you that I am almost ashamed to write to you and get no answers and what you may think of me. I cannot tell the reason for I have not got a letter or one of the family from you these three years past. And in time, I have written six letters to you and couldn't get any, either from you or William the more of. I cannot stop writing, as I hope you are alive and doing well and in good health. Also, Mrs Irwin and all the little boys and Lizzie, as I hope they will be a comfort to you now in decline of years. How is business doing these last three years? And all the children coming on? Is William succeeding a situation yet, or Johnny has? Mr Joseph Brown mentioned you some time, and David Eggleston, so we knowed you was not dead. But life is uncertain. I get letters out of America from Brother James and sister. They are all well. I am sure you heard of troublesome times we had in Ireland Oh, bad seasons set worse round here. But, thanks to God, we have plenty yet. John and James joins in kind love to you and Mrs Irwin and all the family. Now, as for ourselves, we are all living and, well, getting old and venerable looking, not knowing the day of our death as many as got that call very sudden. Day after day we hear that one by one has passed away. Thanks and praise be to God for our preservation and prepare us for a time to eternity. My dear brother, I wonder what kept you from writing. If you hadn't been so kind and good, we hadn't so much to lose. I remain your affectionate sister to death. Eliza Irwin. Transcribing these letters, I felt a great sense of sadness the further I went. William continued to send newspapers but almost never wrote. In the face of Eliza's desperate letters, his failure to answer them became almost inconceivable. My dear brother, my dear brother and sister, nephew, now brother, my dear brother... I wonder what kept you from writing your affectionate sister to death, Eliza Irwin. At the end, I had this sense of wanting to go back and say to Eliza, William kept the letters. We've read them. We heard you. As time passed, perhaps it seemed like another life to William not really his own, existing only in the ink and paper 
of the letters sent to him. Maybe the fact that William's third wife was English meant she felt little identification with the family in Ireland. But maybe that wasn't the only reason for his silence. As Eliza said in her letters, William had had his share of troubles. There were more to come. His second son, John Alfred, died in 1886 at the age of 21. His oldest son, William Joseph, a year later. William never told Eliza of these deaths. Perhaps he could simply not bear to send another letter with a black border. My dearest brother and sister and family all, I again write to you after long absent, as I cannot hear from you, except from some friends, to say that they have heard of Mr Irwin being living. I do wish to hear from all your children and how they are situated or are they living or is any have got married or how is Robert's children. How did you get through the world these last ten years? Oh, how many ups and downs has been this 42 years past? Robert's son James, he is married and lives with us. Two children a boy and girl. Now, for myself, I have good health. I can do a little work yet in housekeeping and attending the milking and such like. I know we are all getting old, and the time will soon be up that we will be called away one by one to meet our Lord and Saviour. Let all be ready for that call. My great-grandfather, William Irwin, died in January 1893. He was survived by only five of his ten children, and his third wife, Julia. His obituaries emphasised his loyalty to old friends, his generosity, his thoughtfulness and kindness. He had arrived in Australia as an Irish farm boy, but died as a leading citizen of Ballarat. The flags in the city flew at half-mast on the day of his funeral. Someone must have written to Eliza and the family in Nocoliri and told them of William's death. We have no letters after this time. My dear William, what Cull says about the partner you have, he thinks he'll rob you before he parts you. Here is to you, my brother dear, that's far away and in a distant clime, though absent from my sight, yet present in my mind. Dear brother, in respect of me going to that country, I should be very glad to go if I was able, but the government immigration is stopped this 12 months. So it takes from 16 to 22 pounds per passenger to pay the way. My dear brother and sister, nephew, I hope William Joseph is a fine boy. I often look at the likeness and so does mother. He is such a fat, strong little boy. I think he is like yourself. (laughs) 
We have them in a frame covered with glass. The mother and son Dear son, I see in the newspaper young men called for that can write a good hand and from what Cole tells us, the searching for gold is dangerous. If you could be appointed to the custom house or the constabulary, your bread would be baked. The 1901 census in Ireland showed that Brother Joseph's son and family lived at the Taddy Keel house. The Nocaleary household comprised Eliza, Brother John and the widow of Robert's son, James, and her children. More than 50 years later, in 1957, there was a return to Nocaleary by one of the Australian Irwins. John Irwin, grandson of William and the son of Harold, was then in his early 30s working in England. John recorded the experience in his diary. 5th of January, 1957. A cold drive to Crookstown, frozen feet, rather unsuccessful attempt to thaw them in the bar of a little hotel. A really blazing coal fire, Irish barman and two drinkers who knew about the Irwins. A friendly young man reported that old Robert lived about a mile away. Old Robert was sweeping the lean-to entrance porch. He had his two new lambs inside, out of the Christmas snow. An old bent man with small stature, in a torn and worn old suit with a waistcoat. It took him a minute to grasp that we were Irwins from Australia. He asked us in at once, apologising for his poor house. He made tea, but we ate nothing. During our whole conversation... We both missed about 30% of what was said. But he knew about William emigrating to Australia, as well as about those going to Canada. He told me that as a boy, he was visited weekly by Eliza. Robert Irwin and John Irwin were second cousins, both great-grandsons of old Joseph and Anne Irwin. Robert was the last of the Irwins at Nocaleary. William Irwin had left a widow, and five children. These children had children of their own, and now there have been five generations since William. The family has scattered, moving away from Ballarat and forming new families. We are aware of our debt to William, and now, just as powerfully, to that simple yet extraordinary farming family in Ireland, to whom we are magically connected by those fragile pieces of paper. Give my love to John, to Lizzie and the three young ones. Also to your Uncle Robert. I suppose he never intends to write. Your dear mother, brothers and sisters, all joins me in kind love to you. Butter is ten pence a pound and may God bless you. Dear brother, this is with sorrowful heart and trembling hand I write these few lines. I remain your loving sister, Eliza Irwin. 
Dear son, take care of health and take care of the one thing needful. For preservation of the soul is better than a million of worlds. It may be that never will we meet on earth, but I hope we will meet in heaven above the starry frame. Your ever-loving father, Joseph Irwin. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.